Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for history. We know that you are the God of history. And yet we know that everything that human beings seem to touch um, goes bad and goes wrongly. We're thankful that you've been working in our midst for this season and we long for it to continue. But we do know that no matter what, you always raise up men and women who proclaim Christ. We certainly want to be a part of that because we want to honor you and glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so if you have a Bible, I'll invite you to turn once again to 2 Corinthians. And this time we'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So if you can find 2 Corinthians chapter 5, what I'd like to have us do is talk about priorities. To talk about convictions and priorities. Because one thing we learn from 2 Corinthians 5, the latter part, is the Apostle Paul who's facing criticism, who's facing pressure and critique, has strong enough biblical convictions about Christ and the gospel and the church that he has priorities that simply will not change. And I think we would be well served if we would be reminded of such an example. So what kind of priorities did he have that came from strong convictions because Other people wanted him to preach differently. They wanted him to live differently. They wanted him to teach differently and carry himself differently. And here we are so thankful that he didn't. Well, I want to be inspired by that. Now, you might be thinking we're supposed to be in Ephesians chapter 6 today. Trust me, I tried. I tried to figure out how Ephesians 6 would work for a 30-year anniversary. But you know what Ephesians 6 starts with? Children, obey your parents. Now, I could talk about that all day long, especially if my kids were here, but it doesn't seem to be a fitting 30-year anniversary text. So, I chose a different one, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I want us to learn from these priorities, these convictions, so that we might say, oh, when we look back over 30 years, there must have been men and women and boys and girls who had those kinds of convictions, or we wouldn't be here today. And we should think about the here and now. And if we want to be a church in 30 years, no guarantees, that's not merely a church in name, we would want to have these kinds of convictions. And we would want to have these kinds of priorities, even when other people might tell us we need to change and we need to deviate and we need to restructure ourselves. So if you're a note taker, I'm a note taker, so if you're a note taker, if you're not, that's fine, no problem. But as we look at 2 Corinthians 5, 11 to 21, I'm going to highlight eight priorities for authentic ministry. Eight priorities for authentic ministry. Some will take just a few moments, some will take a little bit longer. But priority number one from the Apostle Paul, knowing the fear of the Lord is priority number one. Priority number one, knowing the fear of the Lord. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. Well, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, out of context, doesn't seem to mean anything. It sounds like a great statement. It is a great statement. But if we back up to the verses just before, we'll see why, why it's so important to know the fear of the Lord. He said in verse Nine, so whether we are at home or away, regardless of where we are, we make it our aim to please Him. 
So that's our aim. And he goes on to say, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Well, that flows right into, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. But I I simply want to isolate that statement for a moment, at least with you all, to say that needs to be a priority. That needs to be a conviction, knowing the fear of the Lord. In other words, with clear thinking, clear knowledge, clear awareness of the fear of the Lord. I don't think he's talking about the fear that unbelievers need to have of the Lord, though they need to have a fear of the Lord. We'll talk about that in other verses. He's addressing Christians. I think he has Christians in view. He has, him, his, he has himself in view. We need to know the fear of the Lord. Why do we need to know the fear of the Lord? Well, you, you know if you've known the Bible longer than about five days. Well, it's the beginning of all wisdom, if you want to quote a proverb, and that would be true. But in so many ways, it's an ultimate truism. Knowing the fear of the Lord means things like this. He's God and Pat isn't, okay? That there is a creator, sovereign king, and there is a creation and a creature who's part of the creation. Knowing the fear of the Lord, knowing, being clear-headed about just simple basic things. And the Apostle Paul is talking about that in terms of church ministry, in terms of his gospel ministry, encouraging the Corinthians to think clearly and sanely, even though there are voices telling them to deviate. He says, knowing the fear of the Lord. And I might say, dot, 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 it will help you. It will be a great service to you. It's a strong, it's a conviction you need to have. It will affect your priorities. Because If God is God and Pat's not, Pat will act differently. Pat will think differently. You will. Churches will. Now let's connect this a little bit with what we know Jesus says elsewhere. The Apostle Paul would have been uh, fully aware of what Jesus said elsewhere. Like in Matthew 16, what does Jesus say about the church? Jesus says, I will build... Does Does he say the church? He doesn't. He could say that, but he doesn't say that, does he? He says, I will build my church, which is a great strong declaration that complements our passage. The church isn't Paul's to do whatever he wants to do with it. It's not, it's not up to Paul to say, well, you know what? I really should listen to these detractors. I really should let them weigh in. They think we need to soften this, lower the standards, and maybe uh, change uh, what we believe about salvation in Christ. Maybe it's not by faith alone. Maybe it's by faith and works. Knowing the fear of the Lord. Knowing the Lord Jesus Christ said, I will build my church. It's Christ's church. And so it's not up to us. And so I think that's so helpful for me, and it's so helpful for us as a church to know the fear of the Lord. Because we do feel pressure to do things differently. We do feel pressure to do things that might seem more successful or or might give us uh, more esteem or something like that. But instead, if we fear the Lord, and it's the Lord's church, not our church, as some of us around here have been happy to say, some of you have been saying it for three decades, it really helps. It really, really helps. This isn't our church. Now, in some ways, I've, I've, I want to say it is, because I want to, I, I, I buy in. 
and I belong and I'm a member and I'm accountable. But in, in another sense, I think it's good and healthy. And a lot of you have been speaking this way for a long time, 30 year anniversary. It's not our church. So we have to make decisions based upon what the Bible says, especially when it comes to hard things. And it's not going to be because it's what we want to do. That's healthy. Knowing the fear of the Lord. It's no wonder the Bible would say it's the beginning of all wisdom. Let's move on. The next priority coming from conviction for authentic ministry. Number two, persuading others to please Christ. A priority for us out of conviction should be persuading others to please Christ. If we read it now and we continue on in verse 11, he says, knowing the fear of the Lord. So what God wants us to do, we persuade others. Well, we persuade others to do what? Well, to believe in Jesus, but I actually think he's going to get to the evangelism stuff later. But for now, we persuade others because we, we think about, okay, God is God and we're not Him and we're doing His kind of ministry in His name. So therefore, what do we do? We make a priority out of persuading others. And it's actually not that hard to figure out what He means by persuading others. Let me help you if you haven't noticed it already. But where I'm going to draw my circles and lines to see how to interpret this the right way, we persuade others, well, to do what? That's verse 11. Well, if we go back up to verse 5, he's carrying the idea down into verse 11. Verse, excuse me, I said verse 5. Chapter 5, verse 9, at the end, we make it our aim to please him. We make it our aim to please him. The apostle Paul says, we make it our aim to please him. And now keep moving, flow of the text, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. We persuade others to do what? We persuade others to make it their aim to please Him is how I think it goes in good commentators. I agree with anyway, see it the same way. What should we be about? We should be about a lot of things, but one of the things we should be about as Christians who want to please the Lord because that's the ultimate good is we want to get other people to please the Lord. Say, hey, I've, I've experienced ultimate good in my life. Not serving self because I'm not God and I'm not in charge. And even though it seems like it's going to be fulfilling to pursue self-interest, the greatest fulfilling thing of all would be to be in touch with reason and logic and, and treat God like He's God and please Him, especially because of what He's done for us in Christ. And so we're inviting other people, taking them by the hand and saying, come experience this. We'll persuade them to please the Lord, to please Him, to honor Him. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the worthy Lamb. That only makes sense that we, we would want to do that. I like the Apostle Paul's vantage point too because he's the esteemed Apostle Paul. So much so that some people want to make, uh, want to join the Paul cult we learned about in 1 Corinthians. Paul's not saying, I want to persuade others to please me. And I can have a bigger platform. And I can have more fame. And I can have more fortune. No, my driving passion as one who wants to please Christ is to get others to join me in pleasing Christ. That's what we would want to do as a church. If we're following this kind of example, and I think we would, what are we trying to do? We're trying to please Christ because of what he's done for us. And we're trying to get other people to join us 
not in pleasing us, but in pleasing Christ. It's pretty simple, simple enough that I think we can move on. Next priority from conviction for authentic ministry. Number three, valuing God's opinion most. Valuing God's opinion most. Verse 11 goes on to say, but what we are is known to God. And I hope it is also, I hope it is known also to your conscience. Second Corinthians can be kind of hard to interpret because you need to read in between the lines because there's so much sarcasm. Because so much of what Paul is saying, he's saying from the place of defense. Because there are opponents who don't like Paul and they're trying to mislead the Corinthian believers. And so they're, they're, they're lobbing all of these bombs at him. And sometimes what he does is he uses their verbiage. This won't be the only time. And he picks up on it. Sometimes he uses it sarcastically. I think he's doing that here. But what we are is known to God. And I hope it is also to your, known to your conscience. We're known to God. They're criticizing Paul. They're, they're questioning Paul and, and motives and all of this kind of stuff. Well, he's doing what he does for himself. And he's doing what he does because, you know, maybe he's in it for the money. Even though nothing gives evidence to that. Here's what he's saying amidst the criticisms. You know what's most important? What we are is known to God. What we are is known to God. Now, I hope you Corinthians also understand that we're sincere. But you know what matters most? God knows. God knows. So here, let's think about it today. I like to be liked. Generally speaking, when people don't like to be liked, they've got a problem and they need to see a counselor. Okay? I, I like to be accepted. I like to be affirmed. I like to be liked. But sometimes that can get the best of us. And now all of a sudden we forget the fear of the Lord. And now all of a sudden we're tempted to do what other people, whatever it is they want us to do. I love it that the Apostle Paul has a conviction about this. You know well, whose opinion matters most? God. God knows. God knows. You know, at times I'll want to provide a defense and I'll say, well, that's the accusation, but let me tell you what actually happened. Well, I realize that's the criticism, but you know what? It's actually not true. Let me tell you what actually happened. And there is a place for that. There's a place where sometimes you just can't do it. You just take your lumps. But I do like this demeanor, this conviction that in the end, ultimately, you know what matters? God knows. I hope other people know as Paul says in the latter part of the verse. But what we are is known to God. That kind of perspective will help us, from, to, help us to not compromise. That kind of perspective will help us to deal with criticisms. Someone put it this way. Critics may say otherwise. As Paul was attacked for things like his looks, his weaknesses, his speech, his lack of prosperity, and lack of ministry success. However, the blessing of God is not related or dependent upon any of those things. The blessing of God is tied to fidelity to the proclamation of the truth of Jesus Christ. What we are is known to God. Maybe one more thing about this as we would think today, not in our circles per se, but there are lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of Christians 
who are confused into thinking that blessing is related to health, wealth, and prosperity. Something like that was happening in Corinth. Nothing new under the sun. Oh, if Paul were blessed by God, he wouldn't have physical ailments. Oh, if Paul were blessed by God, he'd be rich. Oh, if Paul were blessed by God, he would have countless millions of followers. Oh, he's not blessed of God. We are. We know how to draw a crowd. And the Apostle Paul seems to be expert at running them away at times. What we are is known to God. It's helpful. It's helpful for me. It helps me sleep. I hope it helps you sleep. Okay, let's move on. We have eight of these, so we'd better move things along. The next priority for authentic ministry with conviction and priority, equipping with answers. Equipping with answers. Maybe we could say equipping with with appropriate answers. Verse 12 says, We are not commending ourselves to you again, which would have been an accusation by the detractors. Always trying to, to, to... Defend themselves, always trying to give an answer. That's the Apostle Paul commending himself. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. He must be an egomaniac. He says, we are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, which is probably another accusation, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. So again, catching some of the snark and some of the playing off of what they might be saying, we're not commending ourselves uh, to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer. That's what I want to really focus on. Those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. So this contrast is happening. Paul is known as being a braggart. Christ is honorable. Christ is wonderful. Christ is sufficient. Believe in Christ. To to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He boasted in Christ. He boasted in the fact that you can know you have eternal life. You can have assurance. He didn't back down. And He ended up getting mocked and criticized by opposers. Oh, He's just always bragging about Himself. Oh, you know, He's just... Speaking in command mode, believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. How arrogant. How arrogant. Not like us. We're the humble ones. You just can't know things. Not really sure. Well, Paul picks up on the boasting thing. He goes, you know what? I want you to boast. But don't boast like those clowns. They boast in externals. They boast in works righteousness, things you can see, things you can do, be like us. And that's the furthest thing from me, Paul says. You can boast in me because you know what I do? I give you answers so that you may be able to answer those who boast. A good faithful ministry can give legitimate answers. Paul's answers answers weren't, well... Just take it on faith. Paul's answers weren't, well, just believe me. Paul's answers weren't those kinds of answers, the kinds of answers false teachers often give. Well, this is true because it's worked. No, he had 
legitimate answers. He saw the need for legitimate answers, but his answers had to do with history. His answers had to do with Jesus raised from the dead before eyewitnesses. And he spoke in real time and real space. So much so he would push the envelope and say, if he wasn't raised from the dead, we of all people are most to be pitied. Well, it wasn't because that's what he believed. But my point to you is he gave real answers to real objections. And that's what we should do as a church, be able to give real answers to real questions. Sometimes the answer might be we don't know, but there are a whole lot of questions. There are a whole lot of answers to a whole lot of questions. It's one of the reasons why elders in the church, according to Titus, have to be able to not only teach sound doctrine, but be able to refute those who contradict it. They have to be able to give answers. They have to be able to explain. They have to know it so well. And no doubt they do it as individual elders so they can help the congregation be able to do the same things. They're equipping them with answers, legitimate answers. And Paul's saying, you know what? If you want to boast, boast in the fact that we have answers and our answers aren't have faith in faith. Our answers aren't, don't confuse me with the facts. I know what I believe. Our answers aren't, well, believe me because I'm experienced. No, he, he would give legitimate answers. And why it's not appropriate to trust in externals. Doesn't make any sense. It's lasting. It's perishing. It's going away. Number five on this list, next priority would be what I'm going to call rolling with criticisms. Rolling with criticisms. We have that saying, sometimes you got to roll with the punches. Even though sometimes it's hard and there's complexity and there's animosity, you just got to keep going. And, and you can't just wait for everything just to be perfectly so before you move forward. You got to roll with the punches. Well, the Apostle Paul understood from a theological perspective as a church leader, and I would want us to, sometimes you got to roll with the punches. Verse 13, for if we are beside ourselves, that's the accusation. The the Apostle Paul's out of his ever-loving mind. He's a lunatic. He's a crazy. He he, he, he doesn't know what he's talking about. That That guy's theologically insane. All right. Fine. For if we are beside ourselves, if we are out of our minds and crazy, it is for God. For we are in our right, if we are in our right mind, it is for you. I love the perspective. I love the perspective. They can call us what they want to call us. Uh, and you know what, uh, whatever. Fine. You, you want to call me out of my ever loving mind? Remember how they treated Jesus. Not the word Jesus. But John chapter 10 verse 20 says, Many of them said Jesus has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Well, if we proclaim the good news about that Jesus, guess what's going to happen sometimes? Even though Pat Abendroth loves to be loved. And I love to be accepted. And I hate it when people call me names and write blog posts about me. Well, you do your best. But sometimes you got to roll with the punches. And you know what? If we're loon balls, then we're loon balls for the glory of God in Christ and for the good of other people. 
It reminds me of the Apostle Paul when he talked about suffering, even in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. Therefore, I, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. That's pretty good. might scare a few Arminians away, but it's pretty good. What a philosophy of ministry. Even amidst suffering, I do all things for the sake of the elect, including being called out of your ever-loving mind. I know in whom I have believed, and he is able to keep me, to deliver me until that day. It's great stuff. It really is. So I hope you are not fond of criticism. It's probably unhealthy when we're fond of criticism. Let's not go looking for a fight. But as we proclaim the glories of Christ, which we're going to get to in detail, by the way, and salvation being found in Christ, just know that there might be some name-calling and criticism along the way, and maybe we're going to try to defend ourselves and explain ourselves. But at the end of the day, If we're crazy, we're crazy for the glory of God. And at least the one we're crazy for was raised from the dead and conquered sin and death. I'll go for that kind of crazy. Stake my life on it. Okay, number six, we're doing eight of these. Next priority for authentic ministry. We're looking back. Thankfully, some believers before us were committed to these kinds of things. Hopefully, we will be, and hopefully, people after us will be. Next priority, number six, being controlled, being controlled by the love of Christ. He is controlled by the love of Christ. He wants the Corinthian believers to be controlled by the love of Christ. We would want to be driven by a control of the love of Christ. Verse 14 says, don't miss this. Verse 14, for the love of Christ, most grammar experts take it as the love that comes to us from Christ, love shown by Christ for us, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died. I have to stop just for a second there. The big picture idea is, even though it's going to be hard, even though there's going to be opposition, even though there's going to be criticism, even though there's there's going to be difficulty, which is kind of what 2 Corinthians is all about, Paul defending his ministry, you know what's going to help me stay the course? You know what's going to help me to be resolved and committed and not waver? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Okay. It's that simple, but it's that profound. The love of Christ compels me. The love of Christ moves me. You know what? I don't like it when people are against me. I don't like it when I'm criticized. I like to be liked. I like to be popular. But you know what's going to cause me to keep my hand to the plow, so to speak? The love of Christ. The love of Christ. And then he goes on to to zero in on exclusivity. The one. It's not like there are many Christs, and so I can have allegiance that's divided up. There's, There's only one mediator. There's only one Christ who's the one and only Savior that the world has received. And so I have to be committed to Him no matter who doesn't like me. The love of Christ compels him. I love that. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves 
See, notice that, that love of Christ leads me to not live for myself. Connect the dots. But for him, the one who loved me, who for their sake died and was raised. So you can fault the Apostle Paul for a lot of things, but you can't fault his logic here. In our state of unloveliness, he loves us. He gives himself up for us. The one. And not only that, does, not only does he die for us, he's raised for us, you know. Therefore, I'm compelled. Pat, why are you going to be a pastor for another day, not to mention another 30 days? Sometimes I'm not so sure. Mr. and Mrs. Christian, why, why are you going to stick with it another week? Why are you going to continue to do church ministry with a, a bunch of other people who aren't perfect? The love of Christ should compel us. It, 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 it's like a magnet that just pulls us along because he, if Christ loved me, I can live for him. This is super basic. It really is. But to the degree that we can keep going back to this reality, we'll continue to be compelled to do what? Well, to do the right thing. To live not for ourselves, but for others for the glory of Christ. This is why so many times we say, you know what? It is a gospel problem because Pat Abendroth has gospel amnesia. And I think you all do. And our bad behavior as Christians reflects this. But the love of Christ should be the very driving thing that compels us to live for His honor and for His glory because it's out of gratitude now. It's out of gratitude now. To the degree that Omaha Bible Church can be this kind of church, I think we might live to see another day. How about this? If Christ loved you enough to die and be raised for you, what would it look like for you to live for yourself? It would look gross, is what it would look like. And sometimes I look gross. The love of Christ compels us, he says. Okay, two more. Next priority. The priority of regarding every Christian as a new creation. This is a great one. I have to confess to you, it never would have made my list. Ever. Which I think is some of the beauty of texts in context. Paul's defending his ministry as legitimate and these are the things I'm resolved in. These are the things I'm committed to as a priority. You know, one of those things is I'm going to view every single Christian as a new creation. Why do you think that would be helpful? Why do you think that would be important? Think about that. For now, let's read verse 16. From now on, I take it with others, from, from the point in time of being a Christian, once you're a Christian, you think differently. From now on, therefore, we, 
regard no one according to the flesh. So once you become a Christian, you don't look at other people and evaluate them based upon the external. So based upon their socioeconomic status, where they were born. I mean, you just go down the list. You can, you can name anything. So once you become a Christian, you now look at people differently is where he's going with this. We don't look at them based upon the flesh. It changes. Okay? It's not based upon the way they look, the way they have been brought up, what their background is, where they were born, any of that stuff. Therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. This is radical stuff. Keep going after the period. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. So it is, you know, before we were Christians, we, we looked at Christ differently. Good moral teacher, um, good philosopher. Some people thought, see Him as a bad moral teacher. They're against Him, a bad philosopher. So there's all these different views of Christ. But before you're a Christian, you don't view Him as your Savior. So you view him differently. So he's, he's likening it to that. Just like before you were a Christian, you didn't see Christ as your Savior. Well, likewise, you didn't see other human beings the way you can now see them. You just based your judgment upon externals, okay, or biases. This is, this is radical what he's doing here. To have good, faithful ministry, lasting ministry, his conviction is he's going to view all Christians as new creatures in Christ. This is verse 17. I memorized it out of context as a brand new Christian. I'm thankful I memorized it, but now I'm thankful to have it in context. 17, don't miss this. Therefore, so tie that with the verse that comes before it. Therefore, if anyone, notice anyone, all-inclusive, is in Christ, which is a technical way of saying united to Christ by faith. So if you're in Christ, you're united to Christ by faith. We like to say, therefore, you receive Christ and all of his benefits. But notice, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And I don't care what philosopher you read later today. I don't care what amazing, epic film you watch, you'll never see anything greater than that today, I promise. I mean, what, what he's claiming is staggering to the mind. If anyone, no matter what they look like, how they have been brought up, whatever, if anyone is united to Christ by faith, he or she, young or old, is a new creation. Which is another way of saying, what he's saying is, they're, they're part of the new creation, they're, they're part of the eternal kingdom. Absolutely fascinating. And so see, see how practical this is. Now I can deal with people who are brand new Christians behaving badly. But I, I can now have a special lens to view them with or through. I don't know. You get the idea. <laughs> I, can, I can see them in Christ. Just like they need to see me in Christ. And maybe I'm dealing with older Christians behaving badly. Uh, immature Christians. Mature Christians. If the, if the fact is that Jesus is our one and only Savior and the only way we get to heaven is through Him anyway, the only way to become part of the new creation is through faith in Him, we're all equal. Even if in the here and now we're at different levels of maturity. 
I mean, I, I can deal with all kinds of people now. And you can deal with me. And maybe it's, it's cheesy to think of, and I don't like cheesy. But to see other people as you would see Christ? In the sense that if they're in Christ, they are new creation. I can deal with anybody. And I don't have to be condescending. And I mean that in the worst sense. To the degree that we can get this one, we could have a successful church. (laughs) It's so weird. Christians today pretend like this isn't true. And they talk about some really whacked out things and promote some really anti-Christian philosophies in the name of Christ. You know, we need to understand to have a good church ministry. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Okay. Now they have something to work with. Changes everything. Then I I want to go back just for a moment. I'm having too much fun here a little bit. Give me some room. 30-year anniversary. Okay. (laughs) Next, that second part of verse 17. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I, I just want to go on record and say that that's not true. Maybe you'll get a new pastor for the next 30 years after I did that. I don't really mean it. But there's a sense in which it's not true. It's true, the old has passed away, behold, the new has come, because it's as good as done. He's doing the already not yet thing. He's doing the inauguration versus consummation thing. The the fact of the matter is, this is not the new creation. Don't let anybody tell you that this is is the new creation. Okay, Don't let anyone tell you this is the new Jerusalem. Okay, I don't know what they're smoking. This this is not it. Have you watched the news? This is not it. In that sense, this is not a true statement. But it is a true statement because in Christ, it's all sure. It's all done. It's all in the bank, so to speak. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Inauguration. Reality in theology will say, but we are awaiting the marriage supper of the Lamb, the consummation. But it's all as good as settled. It's so good. Which is why you can say, Pat Abendroth, you know, I know him well enough to know he's got some problems. Congratulations. (laughs) Me too. But if I'm in Christ, new creation. And now you can handle me. And I can handle you if we're Christians. It's not licensed to behave badly. But it's really fascinating how this could change things. Okay, I've got more texts that I want to go to, like Colossians 3, but we don't have time. We're going to do the last one. Uh, my point is super, super long. My title here is super long, so I'll abbreviate it. But just to put myself in better company, the longest book title ever has 1,809 words. So I'll be brief. It won't be 1,809 words. Um, final priority for us that we want to learn from would be number eight, understanding, I'll abbreviate, understanding salvation by grace alone. Understanding salvation by grace alone. In other words, understanding the true gospel to make it short. 
My long one was understanding, affirming, and promoting reconciliation with God in Christ by grace alone. He ends, <coughs> excuse me, he ends in verses 18 and following on just such a great, I mean, this is just a long sermon series that I'm going to go as fast as I can through and just pack in, but it's unfortunate that we have to go that fast. But he ends by stressing the need to know and understand the significance and the profundity of the true gospel. Because if we understand the significance and the profound nature of the true gospel of Christ, and he's going to go there, then we'll know what it is so we can promote it and defend it and be a legitimate church for longer than the next three days. And then, and then out of that conviction, we'll know what we're supposed to do. We'll, we'll know our calling in the world. We'll know what to preach. And so hang on, let's do this. Let's do it. Let's do it quickly, but let's do it by giving it some good credence as to what it's all about. Verse 18, all this is from God. New creation stuff, right? How, how, how are you a new, new creation? How does all of this happen? Well, you know, God meets us halfway and, and you know, as long as we consult all the religions of the world and philosophers and, no, all of this is from God. This is sovereign grace kind of talk. All this is from God, who through Christ, substitution, reconciled us to himself. So the reconciliation is extraordinary. How Pat, a sinner, could be reconciled to, to God is extraordinary. Well, how does it happen? All of it from start to finish, from point A to point Z, it's all from God. It is, as we like to say in theology, monergistic. Okay, with that in mind, there's the preview. Verse 18 then says, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's the ministry that he gave us. Yeah, but Paul, there's a lot of uh, needs in the world, and so we can have a ministry that's this kind of ministry, and a ministry that's this kind of ministry, and a ministry that's this kind of ministry. In fact, you know what? Ministries are countless. Well, ministries are countless. Ministry means service. We could serve fellow human beings countlessly because there's so many needs. But here, the Apostle Paul's not getting distracted by many good options. He knows that his calling, the church's calling, the church at Corinth's calling, is to have one unique prioritized ministry, and it's the ministry of reconciliation reconciliation between sinners and God through Christ. Folks, countless, 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 countless churches around the world are really, really, really cool-looking museums because they've forgotten this. We have been entrusted with a ministry. Oh, so much ministry, Pastor. There's a lot of needs. True, it's, but, but what we've been entrusted with, first and foremost, is a ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, it's a gospel ministry. Let's keep going. He says, if we keep going, verse 19, that is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Notice the cosmic nature of this whole thing and how grand it is. So if this is the grandest calling of all, surely we can give it priority. And then it says not counting or crediting or imputing their trespasses. That would be violations against God's law, against them. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. I mean, 
It doesn't get any better. If the God of the universe has done this in and through Christ, and, and, and he's entrusted to fallen human beings who are in Christ, part of the new creation, yes, but he's entrusted to us a ministry, and it's a message ministry. Don't get, the, don't miss this. Our ministry, you can't live the gospel. You can live in light of the gospel, but when people tell you to live the gospel, they don't know what they're talking about. They don't know what the gospel is. You can't live the gospel because it's the good news about us. No, it's the good news about him. And so it's why our ministry is a message ministry. It's a word ministry because the only way the gospel can be communicated is through a spoken message. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Again, a million times we're going to get this wrong and Omaha Bible Church is going to have a funeral and we're not going to be a legitimate church anymore because we're going to not have a legitimate ministry anymore. We're called to proclaim Christ, a message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. We represent Him with His message rather than our own. God making His appeal through us. How about the grandeur of that? Oh, if I could only be a dignitary, if I could only be an ambassador, what an esteemed, honorable position that would be. He's saying that's what's true of Christians. So why are we, why are we settling, as Lewis said, for playing in the alley with mud pies? Well, it's because we've never experienced a holiday at the sea. Point being, it's so much greater. Why are we going to settle for all of the lesser ministries when we've been called and and, and privileged with the, the greatest, most honorable ministry imaginable, the ministry of reconciliation? God making his appeal through us? Yeah, but I'm a sinner. Yeah, new creation sinner. And God uses means. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. I love it. For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we, the alienated, estranged sinners, might become the righteousness of God. It's absolutely staggering to the mind, amazing kind of stuff. Pretend with me and we'll end on this. Pretend with me if you are a Christian. What would have happened if all of the other Christians ever before you would have felt the pressure to cave and compromise and to follow other good pursuits because other people were criticizing them and other people were were telling them to lighten up and think more broad-mindedly or narrow-mindedly for that matter, because that's a a like problem. See, I feel the temptation to cave and compromise all the time. What if every Christian who ever came before you did so? It's a hypothetical. You wouldn't be a Christian. There wouldn't be any true ambassadors with the message of reconciliation. Let's think sanely, friends. Let's think sanely and have die-in-the-wool convictions about true and good things so that we have priorities so that we might be a church a little while longer. Maybe longer than that. Only the Lord knows. 
But let's have biblical convictions to say, this is what we have to do. And to sometimes say, we cannot do that because that's not what God has called us to do. Who is worthy of these things, the Apostle Paul says, and we know the big answer is no one we know. No one we know. And yet in the same text, he says, thanks be to God who always gives us the victory. How could that be? If we're always proclaiming the message of reconciliation, it will always be victorious in the hand of a sovereign and good God. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for Omaha Bible Church. Thank you for the fact that while we are weak and sometimes unwise sinners, that you've seen fit to have this church proclaim Christ. We pray for other churches around the world, whether they are brand new or hundreds of years old, that they would find themselves refreshed in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and want to live for his honor and for his glory. Thank you so much for this day of celebration. May we have a great time eating. We would ask that you might encourage us that the food would be a reminder of your generosity to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.